0: Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Uh, About two weeks ago, I had uh, three doctor's appointments in one week. Yeah, some of you know what that's all about. Some of you, you're going to get there. I'm just telling you, you know, so I went to, I went and had a physical, and uh, in spite of, you know, the, listen, the video screen, I look 10, 15 pounds later, if you just look at me, don't look at the screen, okay, uh, but he did say, you got to lose a little weight, you know, you're a little overweight, but he said, hey, your cholesterol's good, your blood pressure's really good, so I'm like, all right, two out of three's not bad, that's good, so I'm doing okay there, then I went to the sleep doctor, um, I haven't been sleeping, like, for a couple of years, because I just can't sleep at night. And, uh, and so I got on this like sleep machine thing. It's amazing. I sound like Darth Vader at night. It's awesome. But I, I sleep now. This is what I look like when I sleep. It's amazing. You know, you're like, you should probably go without sleep, actually. Um, anyway, but I did that, and then the last one was I went and got my eyes checked, and I got a new set of glasses. And uh, I'm not wearing them right now because I only need them for reading and computer. They're called progressives. They're amazing, you know? Some of you have them. They're just amazing. And if you don't have them, you should get a pair. Well, only if you need them. But anyway, uh, but, but they're absolutely amazing. Because, you know, I've been looking at, like, medicine bottles, and I honestly thought that those little labels were just artwork, realize there was actually words on it. That's like amazing, you know? Like I thought it was a QR code or something. No, there's words actually written there. It was something about getting a new set of glasses. Well, we've been in this series looking at the book of Revelation or this letter that was written to seven churches, and the purpose of Revelation Is really to summarize and to clarify what the whole Bible has been telling us all along. In fact, what you're going to discover, if you were to actually read Revelation, and and I encourage you after, you know, Larry preached a couple of weeks ago, you know, so avoid some of those chapters, right? That's about the people that are not following Jesus. You don't need to worry about that. But if you read Revelation, what you discover is there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. It actually is reporting in a in a particular style of writing something that's already been said somewhere else in the Bible. But the purpose of this letter is to clarify to not just these seven churches, but to clarify to you and I, what is it that the kingdom of God is all about? It's it's to kind of, it's like me getting my new glasses. All of a sudden, I'm supposed to see how life is supposed to work. And the big takeaway that I hope that you're getting this summer as we head into the fall and maybe there's some uncertainty and what's going on with the economy and what's going on with uh, politics and what's going on in our country and all these kinds of things. In the midst of all of that backdrop, the reason why I felt like the Lord wanted us to do this series over the summer is so that we can reinforce what the Bible tells us. So that we can almost like put on a pair of glasses and go, oh, I see it clearly now. For for these churches, it wasn't Rome's not in charge, the devil's not in charge, the synagogue's not in charge, the culture's not in charge. Jesus is the one who's in control. Isn't that what we discovered in week one? Like Jesus is revealed not as the suffering servant, right? But as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is overseeing in the midst of his church, his family, his body. And so, what I hope you're walking away with, what I hope that you're personally applying to your own life, to your own existence, to your own family, to your own finances, to your own relationships, Jesus is in control. Now, you might not feel it, and it might not look that way, but Jesus is in control. And and so, we're putting on these glasses to remind ourselves, to see clearly this idea that Jesus is in control. And because he's in control, he invites us to draw near and to follow him. Now, I'm going to nerd out for a little bit. You don't know this about your pastor. But if I hadn't gone to Bible college some 32 years ago to study theology, I would have moved to St. Andrew's University in Scotland to study geology. You see that? Geology, theology. Vastly different, okay? But... I kind of nerd out over rocks and earthquakes and volcanoes and tectonic plates and magna and aquifers and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Like, I just nerd out. And so this summer, we went down to uh, Palm Desert, Palm Springs, uh, because we wanted to, f- to kind of get a little taste of what hell's like. <laughs> By the way, you know that's why there's so many Christians in the South, don't you? Because when you start talking about hell, they go, yeah, we know. <laughs> It's so hot and humid here, right? Well, anyway, we got out of the car, 7, 9.30 at night. You know, it's dark, 9.30 at night. It's 103 degrees. It was like stepping into an oven, you know? But here's one of the things about Palm Desert, Palm Springs, that whole area is that, that, that you know, the San Andres Fault? How many of you have seen the movie? Yeah, it's just like the movie, whatever. Anyway, the San Andreas Fault is a fault line, and it actually runs through that area. And so I'm like, are you... Jenny's like, she's always researching stuff. I'm like, are you kidding me? We, you can see the San Andreas Fault? I mean, I want to go see this thing, right? So we get in our car, and we drive out to the kind of the desert, you know? And I want to show you a picture, because I'm, I'm just going to nerd out for a little second. Come um, on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Picture, survey says. There it is, okay. And so... It's a desert. Do you see the desert? Yeah, we were staying in a tent just to the right of that. No, I'm just kidding. But you see on the distance there, there's all those palm trees. And there are like thousands of palm trees and you're like, how can there be all of these palm trees in the desert? Well, the reason why is because there's an aquifer, which means that's where the water table comes a little bit higher because of the fault. So the fault has pushed this water table or this aquifer up. And all of a sudden, there are thousands and thousands and thousands. Of, it just goes on for as far as the eye can see all these palm trees right in the middle of the desert. And I'm like, just totally fascinated. <laughs> you're not? Okay, sorry, I got really excited about that. Because earthquakes, and that's just fascinating. Now, I don't know if you know, but a couple of weeks ago, up in Seattle, there was an earthquake. Do we have any Swifties in the room? Yeah, we got a few Taylor Swift fans in the room. All right, let's pray for them right now, right now, right now. No, just but a couple of weeks ago, when she was doing a concert up in Seattle, there was a 2.3, uh, whatever, earthquake, Richter? no, it's not Richter's, magnitude 2.3 magnitude yeah uh earthquake because of this concert that was going on you know good job you swifty fans you're amazing you know you move the earth (laughs) but now we all grew up in the pacific northwest right in portland so some of you maybe grew up with this you know i don't know if they still do it you know the big ones coming right and you know so you do all the training where you're like you're in school and you get onto the desk all that kind of stuff you know but earthquakes earthquakes they shake everything that's familiar In fact, a picture of Turkey, this happened a little over a year ago, actually in the region where these churches were located, are pretty near to where these churches were located. And so what we recognize is that these churches that we're studying actually were in an earthquake-prone area. In fact, the church we're going to talk about today is the Church of Philadelphia. And what we're going to discover is that that church, not just physically physically, Right? not just the city, the walls, the temples that were all there were shaken physically because of a major earthquake that happened in AD 17 but what we're going to discover is that the church itself was being shaken because of a circumstance that was happening with the synagogue, the Jewish believers or the Jewish uh, people that were in that particular city and so Philadelphia, and you probably know this Philadelphia means the brotherly love, right? It's the city of brotherly love. And, and literally, actually, in AD, 40, uh, AD 140, a, a king of Pergamon by the name of Adalus, uh, no, I'm going to mispronounce that, um, Adalus, um, I think I have a picture of him or a statue that shows you him. Um, he was nicknamed Philadelphus because he loved his brother so much. And so he wanted to build a city to honor his brother. And so he built the city of Philadelphia. And that's how it got its name. And in fact, that city still exists today. It's now in, in modern day Turkey and it's called Alashir. And it's, isn't that mind boggling that there's a city today that you can go visit that actually existed from a few thousand years ago when this was written? And, and, and so what you further recognize, and I think this is a testament to God's faithfulness, is that there has been a church, a presence of the people of God in that city since this letter was written. And what we're going to discover today is this whole letter is about faithfulness. God's faithfulness and our faithfulness in return to him. And so this city got built and it was a a glorious city. It was a well-off city. It was a a major trade center. It was actually built uh, kind of as a gateway between Europe and then Asia Minor. And the goal of that city, it was actually a missionary city. The Greeks built it because they wanted to export Greek culture into Asia. And so right from the outset, this city, the purpose of this city, was to be kind of a missionary city. As I said, it was in a volcanic area. So there was a volcano, there was um, earthquakes that were prone to happen in that area. But if you know anything about volcanic areas, they tend to be really fertile areas. So there's great agriculture, and that would have been true of this city. That would have been true of the region around this city, that there was all kinds of vineyards. If you've ever been to Napa Valley or maybe kind of McMinnville down that direction, you know, where you see all those grapevines because of the fertile soils, there was all kinds of winemaking and vineyards that took place there, and so this city was a, a city that was thriving. It was a city that was uh, uh, um, it was a city that, excuse me is a city that was doing really well economically until A.D. seventeen, and in A.D. seventeen, now think about that. A.D. seventeen was when Jesus Jesus would have been on the planet at that point, right? In the middle of Jesus was probably around 17, 18 years old, somewhere around that. And this earthquake happens in this region. In fact, it actually destroyed 15 cities, including the city of Philadelphia. In fact, many of the inhabitants lost their life. And what happened after this earthquake is there were these major aftershocks that went on for some two, three, four years. And so it was just an unstable area to live. Well, after that happened, um, you know, Caesar Tiberius, who was one of the emperors of the Roman uh, Empire, he had mercy on that region. He lightened the tax burden to help out the city. And so they changed the name of the city from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea to honor the Caesar. Well, a few years later, they named it, they turned it back to Philadelphia and then back a few years more would pass and they changed the name to Flavia because they were trying to curry favor with the, the next uh, emperor. And so this city was constantly changing its name. And so there was economic or sorry there was instability just because of the region the city had been destroyed people were frightened to live in the city so they would constantly be fleeing and returning living outside the city walls and coming back because of the major earthquakes or the aftershocks that would happen there was all kinds of, there was a lack of identity because this city was constantly changing its name. And so who are they really? And then the third thing that happened that really impacted this region and the city was there was an economic, there was economic instability because of the Emperor Domitian. Now, how many of you remember Emperor Domitian from week one? He was the bad guy. He was the, he was the one that really persecuted the church, And so when I say Emperor Domitian, you're supposed to boo because he's the bad guy, right? You know, boo, yeah, he's the bad guy. Well, listen, this is what he did. He's so bad that he actually, remember, this whole economy in this region was built on the vineyards and the winemaking that would happen there. And so he wanted to boost the Italian industry of winemaking. And so he tells the, he tells the people, the governor of that area, you have to destroy half of your vineyards. Now that sounds like, oh, you know kind of destroy a few grapes no no no. you got to burn all of the vineyards and you know that it takes years to redevelop those things and so you have instability because of the geography of the region you have a lack of identity because of the constant name changes who are we and who's who are we giving allegiance to this week right and you have economic instability because of the ruling the, the caesar of that particular day when this was written not a very comfortable place to live right Now, that's what the community was dealing with. That would mean that this is what the early church was dealing with. But the real issue for the early church in the city of Philadelphia wasn't the instability of the geography or the economics or the lack of identity because they were constantly changing their name. The threat to the early church in the city of Philadelphia came from the synagogue. Now you and I, we gather on a Sunday morning, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm here, get a good cup of coffee, listen to some guy rattle on for a little bit, right? And then we kind of go home, right? Some of us have relationships that we've had for decades, and, and there's really connected. For the early believers, many of them were, were Jews. Many of them had been a part of the synagogue there in Philadelphia, and their entire life was wrapped up in the relationships through the synagogue. Their social life, their economic life, like if you needed somebody to babysit, like like their whole life was wrapped up in the synagogue. Now, what's further to that is that the Roman Empire had an interesting relationship with synagogues or an interesting relationship with the Jews or the the children of Israel. And what they did was that they would give a tax break. So if your name, if you were on the rolls of that synagogue, you would not only have all of this community and, and all of this kind of, it helps you you know, your business and your life, all that kind of stuff. But you also got a bit of a tax break because you would pay the Jewish tax versus the non-Roman citizen tax. And so you got a little bit of a break. How many of you would like a little bit of a break when it comes to your taxes? But here's the problem. The leaders of the synagogue... We're actually saying to, now saying to these early believers, because there was a conflict, a battle that was starting to rage between the leadership of, of the synagogue and the early believers. And what the, what the leaders of the synagogue were saying is, you have to deny that Jesus is really the Son of God. He's not really the Messiah. In fact, it got so bad that the benediction at the end of a service at the synagogue would end with cursing the Christians. Can you imagine? You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you as you go out of here today and curse all the Christians. May they die. That's what was going on in the synagogue. And so if you were now going to, as a believer who's loyal and devoted to Jesus Christ, if you were going to follow him, you were now being, you, you were now being persecuted or put under pressure to deny that Jesus was really the Son of God. Like, this is the center of our faith, This is at the epicenter of what we believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he left the majesty and splendor of heaven, that he lived the life you and I couldn't live, wouldn't live and never will live and willingly goes to the cross, dies so that we can be forgiven, but rises from the dead so that we also can rise with new life. Like our whole faith is built on Jesus Christ. And they're being asked to deny it. What would you do? Well, this is what's going on Amongst this church. And what's so interesting is that the letter. That Jesus writes to this church. He has no critique. He commends them for their faith. He commends them for their faithfulness. He exhorts them to continue to remain faithful. And to hold fast. He's he's honoring them. Because they've chosen to remain faithful to him. As he has been faithful to them. Jesus is showing up at this church and saying, I'm your security. In spite of the earthquakes, in spite of the economic instability, in spite of a city that doesn't know who it is, what its identity is, I'm the one who remains secure. I'm the one who is an unshakable foundation. And the invitation is to remain in me, to continue to follow me. And here's what Jesus says. We're just gonna, what I'm gonna do today is just read, comment, and then I've got a few summary statements that we'll make. But this is what Jesus writes to this amazing church uh, that has existed since this time, even through till today. There's a church in the city of Philadelphia. And he said this, and this is in Revelation chapter three, verse seven. And the angel of the Lord, uh, to, uh, to the angel of the church of, in Philadelphia write this, the words of the Holy One and the True One. Now, every letter, we've we've identified this or learned this this summer, every letter, Jesus introduces himself in a specific way to each congregation. And remember, the Jews are kicking the Christians out of the synagogue, which means that it doesn't mean they just can't attend church or the synagogue on a weekend, right? It it impacts all of their life. They're kicking them out, shutting the door on them. and, And all because you did not deny that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. How does Jesus introduce himself? I'm holy, which is an Old Testament, that, word, that phrasing, the holy one, is if you were a Jew, you would understand throughout the whole Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was a phrase used to describe God. And Jesus is now showing up and saying, hey, I know they're wanting you to deny me and declare me to be a false Messiah, but I'm the holy one. I'm God. And he says this, I'm the true one. And that word true would translate genuine. In fact, the Greek word there can also mean faithful. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm remaining faithful to you. This is who I am. I'm God, and I'm genuine, and I'm remaining faithful to you. And he goes on and he says this, and I have the key Now, the key of David is an interesting phrase because the city of David in the Old Testament is a synonym for the kingdom of God, right? The the heavens and the earth. And you can read this in Isaiah chapter 22. There's a a character by the name of Elakim and he has the key to the city of David, meaning he's the one that can unlock all of the treasures and the resource and the authority of this city of David, of King David. And so, once again, these converted jewish believers who are now followers of jesus christ would have clearly understood what jesus is saying you're the one with all the authority like literally you have the key if you got the key you got the authority to open the door and where the synagogue was closing the door jesus goes on and he says i open doors that no one will shut and i shut doors that no one will open that ought to encourage somebody this morning he's holy He's faithful. He has all the power and all the authority and all of the control. And he's the one that opens doors that no man shuts and shuts no ma- doors no man can open. You know, some of us might find ourselves in a space and place where, man, I'm at work and I'm or at school or I'm in college and people are causing, you know, they're putting pressure on me about my faith, you know, like I'm crazy or I'm wild. And, and, and in those circumstances, in those situations, it could be very easy for us to kind of take a few steps back. But Jesus is showing up to the church and Jesus is showing up to you this morning and saying, hey, I'm the one who's holy and true. Not, it's not what they say. I'm the one who is faithful and remains faithful to you. I'm the one who holds the key, has the authority. I'm the one that opens doors no man can shut. Which means you can hold on to your faith, right? Even in those moments where maybe you're persecuted and maybe you feel like, man, I got passed over for, for, for a promotion. It's God who opens doors, It's God who shuts doors. It's God who's in charge and in control. And he goes on and he says this in verse eight. He says, I know your works. I want you to hear this this morning. God sees, God knows. He's in charge. Remember, we talked about this in week one. He's in the midst of his church. He's walking with his people. And he's not blind to what's going on. He sees, and I think it's really interesting. He says, I know Not your beliefs, I know your works. I've seen how you've put this thing into practice. Remember, the church in Ephesus, they believed all the right things. In fact, they were actually commended for how they dealt with heretics, right? Those who were teaching false teachings. But they lost their first love. What he says to this church is, he says, I see your works, I see your practice. You've taken your beliefs and you've actually lived them out. And I see those works. And he goes on, he says, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. The leaders of the synagogue may have shut a door on you, but I'm the one who has the authority. I'm the one that opens doors that no man shuts and shuts doors that no man opens. He says, I know that you have little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now there's this pressure to conform. There's this pressure to deny who Jesus is, to deny his authority. There's this pressure from this community, a religious community, actually, more than it was a secular or cultural community. And he says, in the midst of that, he says, I see and I know that you have little power. Now, that might sound like a discouraging statement, you know, that Jesus is going, man, can't you do better? But what Jesus is saying is, I see that you don't have the strength in yourself to stand. But remember, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one, I'm the one that's remained faithful to you. In fact, can I maybe suggest to you this morning, and I think I'm on good grounds, because the Bible says it this way, that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. You see, God, what's what's uppermost in God's mind is his glory. And sometimes we step into situations, you know, it's kind of like we step in like Superman. Yeah, look what I did, look what I was able to work out. And what God's saying is, he says, no, 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 I see your weakness. I see, your, I see that you don't have the strength. That's actually a good place to be, because what that means is that you're going to be dependent upon me. Because I got the strength, and it's my strength that's made perfect in your weakness. Which means that in those moments, man, that's an opportunity not for us to be frustrated. That's an opportunity for us to go, God, it's in your hands. Like, Lord, like what an amazing king you are to know me, to see me, to know the intimacies of my circumstances and things that are going on. And you're the one who is faithful and true, which means when I am feeling weak, the first place I go is to you. Because you're strong and you're gonna carry me. You're gonna help me. Sometimes he carries us through those situations and it works out kind of the way we thought it would work out. Sometimes he carries us through those situations and it works out in an entirely different way. But I'll guarantee you this because he sees the beginning from the end that as he carries you through that, even when it doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out, it will work out for your good. It might not work out for your good in that moment. You might look at it and go, I don't know. But you see, God, he's the one with the key, all the authority. He sees the beginning from the end and he sees the end and he's getting you to that place. And that's why when you're weak, You can be strong, not in your own strength, but in his. He goes on in verse 19, or verse 9, and he says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Now, isn't that awesome? (laughs) Where do you go to church? Synagogue of Satan. Uh, At least that's what God calls it. We don't call it that, you know, but... uh, and remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that synagogue of Satan is this, this idea that anything that opposes God, well, these guys are opposing God. So of course it's the synagogue of Satan. And he goes on and he says, who say that they are Jews, but they're not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your, seat, your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now think about that. Think about at work, think about at school, think about in, in college, and somebody's poking fun at your faith. Somebody's like, that's just crazy. You're a fool. You know, how could you believe that stuff? What Jesus says, you remain faithful. I'm the one who they will, they'll learn how much I have loved you. Because I'm faithful. I'm true. I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm in control. And he goes on and he says this. Now, He goes on, and and the word because is really important. So there is a condition here. There's something that the Lord wants from us. And the word because. So I'm going to remain faithful to you. That's the starting point, right? And in the face of this persecution, if you remain faithful to me, I'm the one. They're going to learn how much I love you. And it says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, isn't it interesting? He says, because, and he uses the phrase, kept my word. He didn't say, because you believed a few things. He says, because you kept my word. That's trendy in today's world to kind of question the authority of this book. Well, they didn't really mean that. They don't really... No, no, no. We live under the authority of this book. You want to know who God is? What God thinks? That's right in here. And because they kept his word and patiently endured in the face of persecution in the face of their faith being questioned and undermined even by a religious community, it says, I'm going to keep you. Now, what's interesting is that he says, and there's the word from, that preposition right in there. The idea is it's not like he's taking you out of it and you're not going to experience. It's like, no, no, no. The, the trial comes on the whole world, but, but in the midst of the trial, he keeps you. You're safe. You're secure. He keeps you in the middle of all that's going on around you. So, so what, are, what are we to do? Well, verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. And then here's the admonition. Here's the exhortation. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, in Corinthians, it says that if we run the race, what we get as a prize is a crown, right? Now, not not like, you know, it's metaphorical language, okay? But, but what he's saying there is there is a reward. Like you, you remain faithful. You run the race. There's a prize. There's a reward. That is not true of, of anybody that runs a race. But what he's saying here is you've got to hold fast. God who is faithful, God who has demonstrated his faithfulness to you and I through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus who is holy and true and holds the key of David, all the control, all the authority belongs to him. Like there's no question on that side of the equation. But on this side of the equation, God is now saying you got to respond to my faithfulness. And the response in the face of persecution, in the face of doubt, in the face of anxiety, in the face of fear, is will you remain faithful? Will you hold fast? Now, that word hold fast literally means, like, keep a firm grip on this thing. Don't let go of it. You know, you know I, 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 a couple of years ago, I, I was playing with my wedding ring and I lost it, you know? And it's this thing that's like, you know, it's been 28 years I've had this thing on my finger and it's like, it means so much to me because of what it represents and the relationship that I have with my wife. And it was like this panic, you know? It was like, you know? And it's like, I think it was like two weeks went by and we had this funny carpet and all of a sudden I discovered it in the carpet, you know? It's like, you know, I said, I put that thing back on. I gotta hold firm to that. Like it just represents something to me, you know? No corny kind of a situation, but remain, hold fast keep a firm grip on your faith. Well, how do we do that? How do we keep a firm grip on our faith? Well, I I think the Bible teaches us a few things, you know, but number one is where's your, where's your own relationship with Jesus? Is it, yeah, I believe in him. Yay. Go Jesus. Foam finger. You're number one. Hey, right. Or do you actually spend time with him? Like when you wake up in the morning, do you realize that this is the day that he has made, right? And that he has plans for you. Have you thought about asking him? What about this? Like I, I was just doing this on, on, uh, on uh, Scatter's Mountain this morning. Uh, I got up early and I was wanting to get the sun, to see the sun to rise, but it's all smoky. And then there was like this red ball in the sky. You know, it was like freaky. Um, I actually questioned, I thought, is that the moon or the sun? No, it's the sun, it's, it's you know. But when you get up in the morning... Do you surrender your day to Jesus? Or do you just go about your own business? Like, this is what it means to hold fast to your faith. Is, is I'm in an active, vibrant relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who makes it really clear. I know you, I see you, I walk with you, I'm in the midst of everything that's going on. But many times we can forget that because we don't spend time with him. Hold fast. Lord, this is the day that you have made I'm going to follow your example. And I'm going to say, Lord, let your will be done today, not my will. Lord, I surrender my life, my thinking, my thoughts, my practices, my, the, my, the things that I look at, the, things that I, the conversations that I have, right? The way that I treat other people. Lord, I, I surrender it all to you. Lord, those fears, those anxieties, those doubts, those stresses. Lord Jesus, the pressure that I feel from finances. Lord Jesus, that, set, that, that that coworker that's driving me nuts, that classmate that just mocks me for my faith. Lord, I surrender it all to you and I come under your authority because you're the one who's the king of kings and holds the key and opens doors that no man can shut. Hold fast. Surrender. Spend time with him. Get into his word. Can I, can I challenge us on one other thing? And I don't really need to challenge you because you're here. But make church a habit. In fact, there's a study that's out saying one of the best things you can do for your parents, or for your kids, parents, grandparents, is regularly come to church. There's something about singing together and what it does in the brain, and 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 learning together. Right? We're inundated with all kinds of stuff. Come, make church a habit. In fact, that's what we learn about in Deuteronomy, and we also learn about it in Hebrews. It says, "Don't forsake the gathering together of the saints." Why? Because you're built up, you're encouraged, you're strengthened, you're learning to hold fast. And here's the biggest thing I've learned as I've gathered for what, 40, 50 years of my life now: is I'm not alone. Like God actually puts me with people that encourage me and strengthen me and pray for me and sometimes challenge me and question me and and push me a little bit in the right direction. That's what it means to hold fast to your faith. He goes on and he says this, verse 12. He says, the one who conquers, so the one who hold fast so that what you have already from Jesus isn't taken from you, isn't stolen from you, isn't undermined by the doubts and fears and questions of culture, right? Right? Hold fast. And then he says this He says, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what, what Jesus is saying here to this church, and what Jesus is saying to you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, in fact, it would have been really common for the readers of this letter, they were familiar with all of the temples that were in all of these cities. We've, we've talked about this over the last six weeks. There were temples and they had pillars in them. Well, one of the things that would happen in those temples with these pillars is that, that if you were a magistrate or a noble person or you'd done something great for that city, they would actually engrave your name on one of those pillars. And when you would go into the temple and you would see these, these majestic pillars, right? Remember the temple of Artemis, like it was a football on a field, half, it had a hundred long, and had 137 pillars. Like you're overwhelmed with the magnitude of this thing. And then you look and you see somebody's name on there and you go, wow, thank God for that guy. He's awesome, you know, or thank Artemis or thank whoever, right? Well, what does God say? God says, you're the pillar. Doesn't it say that in 1 Peter? We are living stones being built together. And Jesus says, "If you rema- I've been faithful to you. This is who I am. If you remain faithful to me, then I will build on you. I'll build my house. You will be a pillar in my house. But you know whose name is going to be written on there? Not your name. You know why? Because it's not about you. It's not your glory. It's God. It's what God has done. And he says, I'm going to write my name. I'm going to write the name of God. I'm going to write the name of the city of God, which is the New Jerusalem, which is a synonym for the new heavens and the new earth. And then he says, I'm going to write my own name. Remember, he's been given the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so when people look at you, they say, man, that guy's a pillar. That woman's a pillar in the house of God. But you know who they ascribe praise and honor to? The one whose name is written on your life and written on your heart. Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is what we're called to. And so if I was to summarize, is this okay? If I was to summarize this, here's what I think Jesus in, in summary's form is saying to the church in Philadelphia. And he's saying to you and to I, he's saying, "I, I know your circumstance and, I, and even though you're weak, I'm the one who holds the key. I have the authority. I have the power. And I'm the one who opens the door. And remember, the synagogue's door was being shut on them. But God's opening a door to his kingdom. God's saying, I've got opportunities. I've got, play- I've got things that you're called to as a pillar in my house, as a pillar in the kingdom of God. There are things that you and I are called to. we got to turn our backs, turn our eyes on those things that would try to get us to compromise and to stray and not to remain faithful to Jesus. Knowing that he has the authority and he's the one that opens the door. And then, exclamation point, therefore, remain faithful. Remain faithful. And he says this to this church over and over. Verse 8, you've kept my word. Verse 8, you have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my word. Verse 11, hold fast. Like, the language of Jesus to this church, the language of Jesus to you and I as followers of Jesus, is that we are to remain faithful. Now, here's the problem. I'm going to try and land the plane here. Here's the problem. In the Western version of Christianity, and the version of Christianity that I'm seeing become a little bit more prevalent than I would like in the body of Christ in our own country. What we have done is we have reduced Christianity to believism, a set of beliefs that if I just believe this and believe this, great, I'll get to heaven. So guess what? I can now live my own life. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. That's not Christianity, by the way. In fact, we are just co-opting the the American version of Christianity, if I can label it that way. What we're doing is we are co-opting kind of this idea of believism that you kind of see in culture. Some of you believe the Seahawks are going to win the Super Bowl this year. My gosh. I'm a Packers fan, so there's not much hope for me either, right? If you believe it, you can do it. No, you can't. If I just believe hard enough, I can do it. Really? How many of you have seen Ted Lasso? I mean, the whole story of Ted, if you've seen it, Ted Lasso's a great episode, right? But uh, Not all of it, but you know. Anyway, Ted Lasso is this inspirational character that's on Apple TV. They did three seasons. It's pretty amazing. And, and the whole premise is believe in belief. Wait, I just believe in belief? Like, it doesn't matter what it is or who it is. I like, just believe in belief? And, and the church, if we're not careful, can do the same thing. And what we do is we reduce Christianity to some kind of story that's about me, and I've been forgiven, and now I go to heaven. And that's not what Christianity is about. The zenith or zenith of Christianity is the installment of a king who's ushering in his kingdom, his king's domain. And he's ushering it in here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we reduce Christianity to a set of beliefs that's somehow about me and forgiveness and I'll get to heaven when Jesus is said, no, 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 I want to make you a pillar. I want to write my name upon your heart. I want you to understand that you are here on planet earth to accomplish something of way greater magnitude to see the kingdom of God built and established here on this earth. So, what he says is, be faithful. Now, faithfulness involves an uncomfortable word. Faithfulness is a commitment to obey God. Now, this is where it gets unpopular. Because I like Jesus when I can just like believe in him and like he's some sort of like sugar daddy that just kind of gives me all I want and doesn't demand anything of me. But he actually does demand something of us because he is the king. And the king has citizens in his kingdom and says, Are you gonna follow me? Are you gonna be loyal to me? Are you gonna be devoted to me? Is your allegiance going to be to me and me alone? Or is your allegiance to Caesar? Is your allegiance to the synagogue? Is your allegiance to culture? Like, where does your allegiance lie? And Jesus is writing to this church to command them, but to exhort them to remain faithful, to commit themselves to obeying Jesus. Look look what it says. By the way, the word obey literally means to come under the hearing of, and to say that person, that thing that I'm going to come under, I trust them. And because I trust them, I'm willing to obey them. Now, what's interesting is if your view of God is that he's some just kind of person up in heaven who's got a big two by four waiting for you to slap you upside the head, you're kind of like, ah, I don't, God seems really angry. Now, God's just, but what God, who God is, is revealed in his word. And you have a God who sent his own son to give his life for you and for me. Do you need any more proof of how much he loves you? And not only did he love you and forgive you of your sins, he rose from the dead and he said the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, I'm giving the Holy Spirit to you so that you don't have to try to figure this thing out in your own strength. You actually have me with you. The gift of God to you is himself. Now because we know who he is, do I trust him? Am I willing to hear Put myself under the authority of his word, the authority of his presence, who he is as the king of kings. Am I willing to obey him? In fact, the Bible actually says this, because it has the word obey in it. It says in Acts 5:29, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. And remember, he has the keys, he opens the doors, he shuts the doors, he's in charge. Let him worry about the consequences. You just obey him. He, it says, what does it say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will do whatever you want. It's not what it says. What do you do? You keep his commandments. And by the way, could we just understand for a second, his commandments are designed to, for your good? To, like he actually created you. He knows what works best. And he, if you will obey him and follow his commandments, that's where we actually flourish We've had thousands of years of human history to teach us that everything else doesn't work. Have you noticed how screwed up we are? And God said, if you just keep my commandments, if you just obey me, if you just choose to live life the way I taught you, that's where you flourish. He goes on and he says, uh, what 1 Corinthians 10, 5? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to what? Obey Christ. I don't know about you, sometimes my mind just spins with all the negative things that I think are going to happen in a particular situation, and I waste all of this emotional energy and thinking on something that if I would just take those thoughts captive and say, what does God's word say? Isn't that what it's always been about? Do you believe the lie of the enemy, or do you believe the truth of God's word? Keep it. Obey it. Bring your thoughts under its authority. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son. And then what do we do? Teach them to live their own life. Teach them, right? To dare to believe. No, what does it say? It says, teach them to obey my commandments. Romans 12, 6, or 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign over your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Can I tell you something? Every one of us in this room will obey something or someone. And what God is saying to this church in Philadelphia, or Jesus is saying through this message to the Philadelphians, and what he's saying to you and I, if you will come under the authority of my word, if you will come under my leadership, my lordship, my kingship, right? I'm willing, Lord Jesus, to do that. I'm not gonna do it perfectly. But Lord, I know you see my weakness and I know that you're gonna give me your very spirit to help me do this. Lord, as I do this, that's where you're gonna flourish. That's where you're gonna find blessing. That's where the abundant life exists. Faith is the choice to obey God's word over my own desires and the desires of a culture. That's what it boils down to. Faith is not, I believe, I believe, I believe. Faith is, I believe God's word, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna obey. I'm gonna live it out this way. And what we discover, and this is, why, this is why the rest of the epistles and much of the Bible is actually written this way. It says, here's, here's what I want you to believe. I'm king, I'm the Lord, I'm in charge. Now go do. Go, go read the Sermon on the Mount. It's why we love over hate. It's why we forgive over whole accounts and, 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 and grudges against people. It's why we choose to live generously instead of live with greed. It's why we put others before ourselves. It's why our energies and our appetites are redirected towards the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his way of being, and all the other stuff. It's going to fall into line. And what he promises is a new identity, a security. You will be a pillar with God's name, with the name that's above every name written on your heart, written on your life. And so this morning, as we close, and I know I, I went a little while, the guys are gonna be a hard time tomorrow, I don't care. I wanted you to hear God's word this morning. Because we're gonna be a church, we're gonna be a church that comes under the authority of this book. We're going to be a church that remains faithful. Hey, we're weak. We can't do it in our own strength. But he said that he would give us his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And so we don't do it in our own strength. We do it under his lordship, under his leadership. And because of him, we can be faithful. We can hold fast.